everyone. Welcome to the Buyer-Centric Revenue Model Podcast. This is going to be a mishmash of audio content, LinkedIn content, guest podcasts, interviews, debates, and live Q&A. We'll primarily discuss six topics that reflect the Buyer-Centric Revenue Model. One, sales development versus marketing. Two, the sales assembly line or the AE-CSM split in other subdivisions versus full sales or full sales cycle sales, aka AE-CSM combined, no handoffs, no prospecting. Three, quota versus holistic goals and metrics. Four, commission versus full salary plus bonus. Five, sales versus the option of self-service to the extent desired and possible. Six, the predictable revenue model versus the buyer-centric revenue model. If you haven't already, I highly demand that you sign up for the buyer-centric revenue model community to continue the discussion and help implement the model. Join the movement of forward-thinking peers liberating and modernizing B2B marketing and sales. Achieve a better growth playbook, a competitive advantage, and more productive and fulfilling careers. Enjoy insights, data, best practices, resources, and jobs. Plus, the live Q&A on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Head over to buyercentricrevenue.com to sign up. If you want to learn more about the model and these topics, check out my book, The Death of the SDR and the Birth of the Buyer-Centric Revenue Model. It's available on Amazon in ebook, paperback, and audiobook. And now to this episode. So hey, everyone. In this episode, I brought on Josh Wagner, who is both marketer and seller over at Shift Paradigm, which used to be LeadMD. He helps ownership and leadership understand and do proper modern marketing. He is the host of not one, but two different shows, the Tribe Digital Marketing Series, as well as Love Selling, Hate Sales, which Josh was nice enough to tolerate me on. So Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, man. Awesome. Thanks uh, you know, for joining. It was good to chat last time on your show. So let's, let me just pull up the questions here. All right. So this is going to be an interesting format, guys. It's the first time that we're actually doing this. So Josh is the guinea pig. But basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to get what Josh's buying preferences are how he likes to be marketed and sold to, what his ideal marketing sales model would be, generally speaking, and then kind of like see how that stacks up against the buyer-centric revenue model. So let's start, Josh, with your buying preferences. So putting yourself in the shoes of an average B2B software buyer, how do you like to become aware of, learn about, try, and buy? Like what positively influences you to buy and educates you? by how much, like what really does it for you? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. You know, generally speaking, I'm a bit of a loyalist. I, I value relationships over a lot of things. And because of that, most of what makes me aware of things is relationships, right? It's some sort of referral. Hey, have you seen this? My team's doing X, Y, Z. We've seen a really cool result. I would say if I'm going to really engage with somebody, it's come through some sort of relationship, some sort of referral, just because as a, even in my personal life, I'm just kind of a, kind of a loyalist that way. And I like the relationship aspect of things. So it's typically through a referral, someone will introduce you to something. And then 
after you become aware of a vendor, how do you then, you know, learn about them and maybe try and, and buy, like, how do you kind of like to evaluate them and get up to speed? Yeah. A lot of things is, you know, talking to that same person about what they're doing and maybe if there's any visuals, they can walk me through something that's going on in their side and then vetting that out a little bit further. So reaching out to the network and talking to others, have you heard of it? Are you doing it? What are the competitors? That type of thing just gives me a little bit of a sense of it. Like anyone, I go to the website. I mean, you're going to go to the website. You're going to see what they're saying about it. How are they talking about it? Um, You know, I think especially in B2B SaaS, every website kind of has the same vibe and feel to it. So it's hard to differentiate just based on those things. And they're pretty good at serving up, you know, we, our customers see X return on this and, you know, here's a case study from the biggest brands you've ever heard of and all that kind of stuff. So I think a little bit of that stuff starts to, you tune it out after a while, you get a little bit numb to it because there's so much of the same, which is why I think that first party validation with someone that, you know, and trust is so important. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is, you know, you like to become aware of vendors through referrals and then you like to learn about these companies uh, through your peers, people that you trust, right? First party validation. And mm-hmm. that you also like to go to people's, you like to go to these the website and have a poke around and try to learn as much as you can, even though a lot of websites aren't quite so straightforward or transparent. Maybe they don't give you pricing or something like that, or they all just, there's a lot of fluff, maybe not as much information that you're really looking for. Yeah. So let's, let's now take the opposite of that uh, or the negative. How do you not like to become aware of and learn about, try and buy software? Like what negatively influences you, you know, what turns you off? I mean, I'm not a huge buyer of software just because of my role, you know, it, it, I'm a little bit more empathetic to, well, I, I can tell you this. I don't, I don't really respond negatively to a lots of email outreach. I just don't respond, right? Like I think most people are pretty numb to the mass amounts of email flooding their inbox. I think that channels become so oversaturated that it's just not a good way to get people's attention. I wouldn't say that it's a negative impact on me. It's just never going to get my attention. So that's, that's one thing. Um, I do as a seller myself, I have a lot of empathy for people who are out there trying to do cold outreach and and make connections and build relationships. It doesn't ever convert for me, but I do have empathy for the people that are doing it. And I try to have conversations with them and, and meaningful conversations with them and understand what it is they're trying to do. But in most cases, I'm not their buyer anyway. So it's a pretty easy, pretty easy thing for me. Yeah, totally. And you're absolutely right about the amount of emails that have come through. It's just, there's so much email software to make that um, so abundant and it's so cheap and easy to do. It's too easy. Yeah. Too easy to batch and blast, too easy to hit a button and just not personalize, not make things relevant. Um, You mentioned personalized to, to what extent does personalization of those emails like change things up? Is it, does it make a big difference? Is it kind of do you reply? Do you take a meeting? Does it, does it really influence you to buy? Um, so I'm, I'm going to look through it through the lens of recruiters, right? Because it's a similar world. They're selling themselves. They're trying to help you do things. And I get hit up by recruiters 24 seven, right? And I don't respond to barely any of them because it's the same thing, right? It's either a email or a, a generic LinkedIn in mail or whatever it may be. But every once in a while, 
I will respond to one. And personalization from that world to me looks like understanding what I'm selling now. A lot of people don't realize I'm selling services. I'm not selling software, right? So just very simple. Okay, I get your selling services, where I'm selling, I'm selling in the enterprise. Some really valid assumptions around how much money I make, I think is is good, right? Like, you know, people just throw out, oh, OTE of XYZ. That's not relevant to me, right? I if you're personalizing, you're knowing a little bit about me. I'm pretty visible. I'm on LinkedIn. I have a podcast. Like you can find out quite a bit about me. If you listen to a few episodes of the podcast, you you'll get a good sense of my personality. It wouldn't be that hard. And I've probably had two or three that have been personalized enough with an outreach that said, Hey, I love what you're doing. X, Y, Z. I noticed that you're probably, you know, selling to these types of companies. This is our target market. We're looking at trying to hire people that have made this much money and are looking to grow that, right? Like getting pretty more relevant to me than personal, right? Like, I don't care if they know my name or this or that. Like, I think it's more about relevance and Relevance takes a little bit of research and a little bit of work. So I just like people to do a little bit of homework. And just out of curiosity, those few ones that were relevant, did you take a meeting and, and did you ever, I mean, I know you've been that lead MD or shift Yeah, I've been here for eight years, ever... so I haven't jumped ship, but I've definitely <laughs> taken meetings uh, yeah. over the years. Yeah, but very, very, gotcha. very few. Gotcha. Very, very few. Those poor recruiters. All right, so let's yeah. pivot to your buying preferences in the context of marketing versus sales. So- mm-hmm you know, specifically the, the ability to get information from marketing and self-educate and self-serve. And you mentioned you also get information from your peers as well, mm-hmm. who marketing is also influencing right? versus getting information behind sales where a lot of the information you, you want, let's say about a vendor. And again, we're putting yourself in the buyer's shoes. There's a little bit of trying to imagine things, but, you know, let's say just to see the product, to know how it works, to get mm-hmm. pricing, you gotta, you gotta hit up sales. It's not on the website. What is your preference for getting information from marketing on the website, let's say, or from mm-hmm. your peers versus from a seller? Well, it's actually interesting because I'm quite relational. I like to talk to people. <laughs> so talking to people is actually a preference for me. Then I'm, you know, I read to improve myself and I do read quite a bit, but I would always rather have a conversation with someone about something to get like the real detailed stuff. Now, the flip side of that and the problem with that is so many sellers now aren't good at meeting buyers where they are, right? And aren't realizing when somebody's truly in education mode and how much value they can provide to somebody if they are able to educate, bring them along, help them with these things, as opposed to just like, going through this cookie cutter funnel of qualification and blah, 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 blah. So I I would love to be able to talk to people and and provide information and get information and have a dialogue and things like that, but it's not always a great experience. I think that um, a lot of folks punt to watching videos, downloading the white paper, doing the case study and this and that, just because they want to avoid talking to people. Um, I don't necessarily want to avoid those things. Like even when I buy a car, right. I'd rather go talk to the guy (laughs) than, do a bunch of, you know, brochure downloads and this and that. I, I want it to be tangible, but that's just me. I'm a little mm. bit, a little bit old school that way. Yeah, no, I, I totally feel you. And any thoughts as to why that typically is like why that the, the sales experience isn't so great. I don't think there's enough emphasis on 
training and enablement. And I don't mean training and enablement from a product lens or anything like that. I mean, most people, most companies are doing some sort of product training and whatnot, but they're not. I actually had a guest on my show who's, which is launching this week. And he's really great. His name's Frank Zidi and he's an automotive training facilitator, right? And he trains car salesmen, right? If you think about all the negative perceptions there are of salespeople out there, is the used car salesman not like the number one <laughs> persona that everybody thinks of, right? So he trains these people and he had a great saying that says, soft skills are anything but. Mm. And if you really think about it, right, we're not teaching people soft skills. We're teaching qualification. We're teaching band. We're teaching how to run a demo. We're teaching uh, how to move people through a funnel. Nobody wants to be qualified. Nobody wants to be a part of a funnel. Nobody wants to just get talked at in a demo. There's a relationship that needs to be built there. And there's a concept that I love that I use a lot. It's called building a pipeline for life. And building a pipeline for life is about having a big picture mentality. You can't do that if you treat people like transactions. If you're worried about your commission, your month, your quarter, your year, that's not building a pipeline for life. You really have to put yourself in the shoes of the person on the other side to understand them. Because even if they don't buy from you now, maybe they never buy for you. I guarantee if you treat them the right way and give them something of value, your knowledge, your expertise, this or that, it will pay dividends in some way, somehow. Mm. Yeah, right after the recruiters, it's the poor used car salesmen that have it tough. But that's very, <laughs> that's very interesting that I, I like that approach. So uh, maybe I just thought of something maybe to quantify your preference for marketing mm -hmm. and sales as a percentage, what is your percentage preference for marketing and sales? Is it to get information? Is it 50, 50 is it 75, 25? Um, it's probably 50, 50, to be honest with you. I'm, yeah. I'm looking for information in lots of different avenues. And I'm again, being a little bit old school, I'm looking for a reason to be loyal to someone. Mm. You know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. I'm almost seeking it out. Yeah, definitely. The relationship is very important to you. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk about your, your buyer preferences in mm -hmm. the context of marketing versus sales development. So two different marketing approaches to, to generate and qualify leads for, for mm -hmm. sales. So putting yourself in, in the buyer's shoes and to the extent that maybe you, you get this type of outreach, what is your preference and maybe you can quantify that in a percentage split or, you know, what really sort of charms you, educates you and influences you. I'm a big LinkedIn guy. I, you know, I, and again, it's very much a relationship type of thing. So what I think is working well is people who get independent third parties, people that I respect and trust talking about something, right. That's going to, that's going to give me that initial brand awareness, right. I, mm -hmm. I don't think an SDR reaching out to me is necessarily going to give me a, the brand awareness I need to take action. Whereas if I see, maybe we'll take like David Gerhardt, uh, former CMO of Drift, or maybe he's a CMO again, I can't remember, but you know, he's a, he's a, a big marketing figure, right? Mm -hmm. We're connected on LinkedIn. We've met a couple of times. I respect what he's doing. If he talks about something, I might perk up and say, that's interesting. Right. So I think as organizations think about what marketing is, because like I told you before, I'm not going to read a bunch of marketing emails. Um, 
I'm, I'm influenced by display advertising, but a lot more in my personal life than my business life. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, definitely. This is actually an interesting question. What percentage would you say you're influenced by peers who are, who are influenced by marketing, let's say, mm-hmm. versus like the vendors marketing, you know, and maybe oh, high percentage, 80, 80%. I mean, it's, it's peer influence is going to be number one. And I think a lot of people are that way. Mm. especially if you think about look at the martech world right the martech landscape you've got what is it now 10,000 10,000 <laughs> technologies right so if you're a yeah. cmo you're the target of you know hundreds of thousands of sdrs every year right like you're their buyer for all this technology as a cmo how are you supposed to vet through all that stuff know what's real what's not you're leaning on your own experience of where you've been in the past and the future but you also want to innovate you don't want to be stagnant. So where are you going to go to say, Hey, this new thing is cool. You're going to go to your other friend, CMO, who's, you know, two doors down and you're going to ask him, Hey, what are you using for X, Y, Z? I'm having a problem here. You're probably not going to reach out to the vendor and to 18 vendors and say, Hey, how do you solve for this? Cause then you're going to just, you're, you're going to spin cycles. Right. Hmm. No, yeah, definitely. I mean, say that's why people always ask their friends like, hey, what do you think about this? Because they don't want to always sit down and go through the painful process of evaluating right. vendors, which is, it can take people a long time to do that and to yeah. suss that out. And that's sometimes why you see a very long sales cycle. It's just, this is a very complex piece of software, blah, blah, blah. So that's why reputation is so important, right? It's like, okay, no one got fired for buying AT&D, right? Or something like that. It's <laughs> yeah, like, exactly uh, right. you know, everyone just sort of trusts them. So we don't have to kind of look at them like you do maybe let's say a small startup in mm-hmm. a brand new category where everyone's like, well, what the hell is this? How does it work? That so, is important. And especially ahead. in, in, you know, the B2B SaaS world, it's really important because even think about if you are an SDR and you have to go and make whatever number of dials you have to make, how much more credibility do you have if you say I'm from AT&T versus I'm from some brand new startup provider that no one's ever heard of, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's a lot harder if you are an S, would you say as an SDR and an unknown company in like no awareness, no reputation, no demand. Totally. Especially if you've got an uphill battle against entrenched competitors. Totally. You know, that's, that's a rough gig. I would probably, I I don't know where to rank that between car salesman and and recruiter, but that's a, that's a rough place. Well, Um, your point about branding is good. We'll go back to drift, right? mm. There are, how many chat bots Mm. are there out there? Probably dozens, dozens. Does anybody think, talk about any of the other chat bots? They talk about drift. Yeah. Because they they won that war over intercom, right? That was like the case study for B2B and branding. It was branding. Yeah. I mean, brand is important. And listen, we talked about this pre-show. I'm going through a transition right now. So the organization I worked for for seven years, LeadMD, was a leader in the marketing automation space. We had a name in that space. Well, we got acquired by another agency. And then we did a rebrand in November of last year. And now we're emerging as this new company that has all these great capabilities and a new value prop and whatnot. But the reality is nobody knows who we are. So we're going through that right now where mm. you talk about nobody gets fired for AT&T. We're in that space if nobody gets fired for hiring Accenture, Deloitte, PwC, mm. because those are the conversations we're in now. It's it's tough. It's a good point. So if we think about the, the 
so that's the value of your reputation, right? There's that brand equity. And mm -hmm. for those of you that don't know Drift as a chatbot, um, they became famous for their branding as they, they sort of invented the term conversational marketing and that Correct. they gained a lot of market share against the incumbent intercom. And Dave Gearhart was the CMO at, at Drift. And so he became very well known for that sort of branding. And so that just goes to show you how important reputation is, especially let's say after M&A in the case of, uh, of Josh's company, LeadMD, which got acquired by another company. Um, it's like, well, it's like someone changes their name, right? Or they just get like a makeover. No one recognizes who they are. Right. They're the same person, but the marketing has changed. And so, you know, it just, it just shows how powerful that is. So let, let's now pivot to your buying preferences in the context of like your sales experience and the sales organizational model. So suppose you had a choice between one seller that helps you with, you know, to evaluate buy and to adopt and be successful, like an AE CSM combined, there's not mm -hmm. a handoff, you know, they're your seller. It's a one-to-one -one relationship versus the AE CSM split and the buyer handoff there. So someone to help you with the initial sale and then someone else to help you post sales. So what's your preference for either or well, you know, you have to understand my lens is through selling professional services and consulting, right? So as a seller myself in that world, I'm not going to do the work, right? So I can't, I can't be the, I can be constant in the relationship, but I can't be constant as the one who's pushing buttons and pulling levers and whatever system it is you're using, right? So there is a handoff, right? We're, and that's one of the reasons why in our organization, we involve our delivery team in the sales process, right? We want to make sure that we can leverage our talents of the people that we have in the organization to inform how we scope out a project, how we build a team, start to build that relationship with the person on the other side and give us that structure for making the customer feel really good, right? And we don't ever want to get to a point where they're, we're relying on them to believe everything I say. While I'm a good dude, I'm not lying to anybody. I still, they know I'm in sales, right? I'm an account executive. So we are intentionally building our sales process so that we can, I can build that trust on the front end and I'm very good at it, but then make sure that we're involving more people than just myself so that they know that they're in good hands when we move it over. Um, mm. I think from a SaaS standpoint, it's a little tough. Like I think the handoffs if they're done well, can be okay, but it's very rare for them to be done really well. And people feel like they're just in this sort of assembly line and get asked the same questions over and over again. And no one, they don't feel like they're being heard. So I think less is more in that sense and get a really dialed in profit process in place that is buyer centric, that helps facilitate that move through you know, introduce the CSM earlier in the sales cycle. Like, listen, this is someone that you're going to be working with day to day type of thing. So especially I would also probably say, so the average turnover in SaaS sales is something like 30%. The tenure or how long sellers stay in the role is, so there was a study by Bravado across 150,000 sellers in 82 countries at like 12,000 companies. Mm -hmm. The average tenure is 11 months. That means that like, so if you do have a sales assembly line with, let's say many different sellers, you might have an AE, a sales engineer, a CSM, an account manager. It's like, right. it's, and there's always the questions like, so wait, who's my point of contact? Or who is totally. it now? It's oh, bad. And, and you said like something that's so important to you and for a lot of buyers, 
could be that relationship where it's like, you know, mm-hmm. to the extent that I want a salesperson and want sales in the picture, like I want someone who's good, you know, has loyalty in the key relationship. And I think something like, so for your, for your example, you've been at lead MD and now shift paradigm for eight years, eight years. Yeah. Like that's, that's amazing to have for a company because you know, the ins and outs of that business. You're, you're an expert. I imagine like when you're on a call with buyers, like you've probably seen, I mean, you're an expert, like they probably really like speaking to you because, you know, you've seen, you've had a lot, a lot of conversations, right? I hope Um, so. Yeah. I mean, that's (laughs) the goal, right? Is to, is to provide value. I think of myself as a consultant. And so I will tell you to your, to your point, right? Like, so I've sold to and through software companies for a decade, right? A lot of the way we sell is through our partnerships. And we were a partner with Marketo for a long time. We still are. And now they're under Adobe. But I can tell you there's an enterprise client that we still have today that I brought into the business in 2015, right? And they're a Marketo customer as well. And I remember the main business user at one point saying, I've been through so many Marketo AEs and CSMs and this and that. The only reason I'm still on the platform is because of you you've been the constant. You've always been able to like steer us in the right direction, get us new resources, help us understand how we should negotiate our contract, like all of these different types of things. I was the only consistent for them and I'm not even there. I'm not even their sales rep. I am, but for our services. Right. And it's, it's just kind of an interesting struggle with all the turnover. I used to work at a company called West Union Business Solutions, which is a very, which is like a very old company that like Shift Paradigm and, and Lead MD was sort of a mix, a mishmash of companies that got smushed together mm-hmm. during M&A, but had been around for ages. And there was this one right. seller when I was back in sales on the team there, Andy Mensch, who had been there for like 30 years and he wow. still had clients with him. And he would, he was like, so he had stayed with this company forever and, and people stayed with him like from the eighties. Uh, and <laughs> they, awesome. they, they did not care for any other person to help them. They only wanted to speak to Andy because they trusted, they knew they liked Andy it was the relationship. Andy always took good care of them. Right. And the company, like there, there were things about Andy. I don't think the company liked, but the, but the, but the buyers liked Andy and yeah. um, Andy was a relationship guy, just a very lovely guy and knew his stuff. He was an expert. Like he, he right. was so good. And so it was just so important because it was so rare to kind of have that, but it just shows you that, you know, you really want your sellers to stick around because that's what your buyers want. And they'll keep coming back for more because people did try to like hit up these buyers and like offer them yeah. a better product and better pricing. And let me, let me tell you, there were a lot better products and better pricing out there, but they, the relationship was so important to them. They said, you know what? I don't care. You got something better. Like Andy's my guy. And I, yeah. I probably a lot of buyers would want that, you know? I think so. And, you know, I think expertise is a good way to put it, right? I mean, you should care enough about your craft to build yourself up as a subject matter expert or an expert, Um, because otherwise, what value are you bringing, right? Like I said, nobody really wants to be qualified and brought through a sales process of this and that. So if you're not bringing something to them, that's a value, what are you doing exactly? Yeah, exactly. That's the most, probably the important thing for the seller, I would probably say, and at least, at least from what I have been hearing and seeing from BD buyers is expertise. Because if you're not getting that expertise from the website or from marketing, mm-hmm. then you want it from the seller. So it's like, if, or from your peers, like if you're not getting the expertise from Dave Gearhart about marketing software or from the marketing or from the vendors marketing on the website, then you want that from the seller. 
And it's like, ah, this seller is actually helping me to evaluate and to buy. Yeah, is providing that missing information that I'm not able to get, you know, in a faster, easier way. And in a similar thread, I know we talked about this last time. So still in the sales realm, talk to me about your, your preferences for sellers that are commissioned versus sellers that are paid like other departments with a full salary and bonus. The, the way I see commissions, which might be different from yours, but mm-hmm. the way I see commission and some other people is it's really half of your salary that's withheld mm-hmm. pending your quota attainment. And okay. to the extent that you exceed your quota attainment or uncapped commission is sort of the amount you get beyond your full salary. And your quota attainment obviously is dependent on the buyer's decision to buy. Now, you might have a different definition. You might want to share that. But you know, there's a lot of companies in B2B that have moved towards a non-commission model, Monday.com, mm-hmm. Legion Logistics, Microchip Technology, Bravado, Refine Labs, blah, blah, blah. You know, putting yourself in the buyer's shoes. I don't know if you are commissioned or not. And you can talk about what, you know, how that affects you as a seller, but what's your Mm -hmm. preference? Well, the definitions and the preference are two different things. So I like your definition. It's, it's interesting because I don't, where I struggle is you see all these posts on LinkedIn and everything about all these companies putting out on target earnings estimates that are unrealistic, right? So let's say it's a 300 K OTE and that's an unrealistic number, but now you're saying just pay these people 300 K right. And now is the business going to come back and say, Oh, well, are they going to admit that that was an unrealistic number and now say, well, OTE really is only 150 K. You know what I mean? So that presents a little bit of a problem in the marketplace, right? Yeah. Like that's one of the dangers of commission. Um, it's not so transparent because companies can overpromise and underdeliver exactly because right. it's, it's not guaranteed pay. So it's like, yeah. So if we tell them, especially since, you know, quotas are often stretch goals and most mm-hmm. sellers miss quota most of the time. Like the, yeah. I think the, and in the average in B2B it's uh 60%. But if you put that like year over year, it's most sellers actually don't recoup the full salary that they're let alone get any icing on the cake to their uncapped commission. Whereas every other department gets a full, the whole cake plus the, plus the icing at the outset, you know, or the icing or their bonus is tied to their holistic performance. And there's so many different variables that go into the buyer's decision to purchase that are oftentimes outside the seller's control could be a whole host of different things. And so the seller could do everything right, but then their pay is at stake. So, so in your, so in your uh, experience, I guess, um, do are you, are you commissioned and how does that, how does that motivate you or, or, you know, what would be your preference as a seller? I am. And I personally love it, but you know, I, and and I will tell you the, it's not even a 50, 50 for me. It's like maybe a seventh of my earnings is salary. So like most of the money I make is through commission. Right. Yeah. Um, again, I believe I'm very good. I believe I put the buyer first. Um, I don't really worry about commission on a deal. Like it's not really how I think about it. If I do things right and treat people right, we're going to come out of it together. Um, Mm. You know, I I worry about our business. I worry about the other people's business. Like those are things I care about. I was an entrepreneur. So trying to think about things holistically. And you're a relationship guy. So there's no like, uh, 
you know, there's no trying to make a quick buck and, and like try to compromise on the integrity of, you know, your integrity, and the integrity of the deal just to get your commissions. Like you do, you do what's right for the customer. Yeah. There's nothing worse than someone coming back to me and saying, dude, you sold me a bill of goods. Like I, I can't have that. Right. Like I, I, it's a very low percentage of people that I've ever sold to that would never take a call from me. Maybe I can only think of like maybe one person. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I like it, but from your perspective, I do think that we talk about things that are wrong. We talked about training being bad, onboarding, being bad, not positioning people as consultants, not helping people get deep expertise. A lot of that probably happens because we have this expectation that they're going to ramp super quick. The rep is like, I got to get to hit my quota. Otherwise I'm gone. I'm not going to make any money, like all that stuff. If there were a more of a holistic model and a safety net for people, especially young sellers, right. Coming out of the game that don't know a lot. They don't have the experience to lean on. They don't have a book of business. They don't have relationships. Mm -hmm. I do think it could be a really great proving proving ground, especially in B2B SaaS that it's like, listen, we're going to pay you a healthy salary. These are our expectations. This is how we're going to enable you. This is, you know what I mean? I think that could be a good thing. I do worry a little bit when you get into the upper enterprise, how it, how it shakes out because, you know, those guys are looking to make three quarters of a million, million, $2 million. And I don't see any CEO signing off on a million dollar salary for someone to do enterprise sales. Right. Like it's just, it's just not going to happen. So mm. um, I struggle with a little bit, especially as you go up market. Yeah. Interesting. So just a heads up um, because so the, the zoom is going to end because I don't have, I have the free version because you no had problem. chorus was, was uh, snooping. Um, you had chorus on. So that counted yep. as a third participant. So Got it's it. just going to kick us off in three minutes, but okay. Um, I'll just spin up a new one and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll wrap things and uh, we'll crack on. So it'll just end in like two minutes, but We'll, we'll do a little cliffhanger. So we'll start something and then there'll be a little, <laughs> a little bit of a weird interruption, but dun, dun, so, dun. yeah. So let's talk about modern B2B buyer preferences. So, you know, in your profile and what, having been at lead MD, having been, you know, now at shift paradigm and you're working with companies and ownership and leadership to help them do modern proper marketing, you know, for today, not 20 years ago. Uh, so according to modern buyer preferences, so if we, if we look today, marketing and not sales is responsible for, for most, if not all of the buyer's decision to purchase, either marketing directly to the buyer or marketing's influence in the buyer's peers, as we talked about. And so according to Gartner and Forrester, they've woken up to this. They've, they, they've done surveys of thousands of buyers mm-hmm. and something like 90% of the purchasing decision is because of marketing and mm-hmm. marketing's influence on the peers as a, and the 10% or so is, is sales. So buyers mostly, if not all, want to self-educate and self-serve thanks to marketing. Yeah. Um, that's not all. That's not for every single buyer, but that's just for sure. averages and most. So given the fun, like that change in buyer preferences, which may have not been the case back in the sort of early internet or pre-internet era, where, where marketing wasn't able to woo buyers and give them that information, so a lot of that information actually was, was behind sales. And so, how do you think that that has affected? the marketing landscape, what sort of changes have you seen that have changed the way we do marketing? You know, I think to your point, you know, the buyer's expectations have gotten extremely high. So even from a marketer standpoint, we still have to try to meet them where they are. You know, the old marketing adage of right channel, right time, right uh, message. 
that can't happen today without really good data, a way to ingest data, synthesize data, create profiles about people, understand their preferences at a very deep level, understand who they are at a deep level. And once you have the data infrastructure to do that, then you can go meet them where they are. But, you know, bad marketing, just again, I think you use the word spam a lot. Spamming people with marketing emails, the same as spamming people with same sales email, if it's not being done well, right? So good marketing has really the modern marketer needs to have a really good data foundation. Otherwise they're really going to struggle to meet the buyers where they are. And we're back. <laughs> that was a good intermission. Uh, yeah. So yeah, now that, that's, um, that's a great point. So marketers need to meet buyers where they're at. They, they need to adopt to their buying preferences and not try to force buyers through some sort of outdated marketing practices because, yep. you know, it, it's buyers that are leading the, you know, it's like, it's like you're at a bar, right? And you're trying to woo a girl. And do you want to be the annoying jerk or something like that? Or, right. you know, you, you gotta, I don't know how to put it, but I guess you attract more flies with honey, right? That's exactly saying, right. You know? Yeah. So, all right. So you see underneath the hood at a lot of, of B2B and, and enterprise we do, companies, yeah. right? So now you've probably seen everything under the sun there is to see the good, bad, and the ugly. So based off of that modern buyer preferences and that mindset that market needs to have to adopt, you know, to what extent do you see across all these companies sort of the, the current marketing model and how it's aligned with modern buyer preferences? And, you know, what are you seeing? It's taking time, but, you know, especially in the upper enterprise, you know, the upper enterprise is so field sales oriented still and field sales got a really big shakeup during COVID, right? Cause the, mm-hmm. Road Warrior, who basically plans their week around, you know, Iowa on Tuesday, Chicago on Thursday. I've got two meetings in each city. That's my week and everything else. And their life is built around booking those meetings, prepping for those meetings, you know, that whole thing. That world is getting a little bit turned upside down. So understanding how, you know, marketing in that sense was almost like a a sales support function. And a lot of those big enterprises, you know, think big legacy companies where marketing as a support function, helping the field sales go out, you know, create collateral, blah, 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 blah. So you're starting to see those companies start to modernize, but it's, you know, maybe 10 years back, you know, you think early days of marketing automation, those companies are just getting there. So there's a way, there's a little bit of a ways to go. Some of them are starting to introduce the idea of data consolidation, data warehousing, customer data platforms, things like that. Um, but it's a big lift for them. Think about all the silos they've created over their you know, hundred years. They were maybe in business doing business one way. So in the upper enterprise, it's tough. You're starting to see the mid-market and SMB, those companies are just more nimble. So they're able to adopt things faster. They tend to be early adapters and it's a competitive advantage for them. So organizations that are looking to intelligently leverage technology. That's the key is the intelligent because just buying tech isn't going to solve your problems. It's going to create you a bunch of bloat and probably create a disjointed experience for your customer. If it's not intentionally brought into the business, integrated into the data model and things like that, that gives an advantage to the smaller company, right? They, they can leverage tech, be intentional about it, build data models from the ground up that are built around customers and customer preferences. And now there are 
financial reasons to do it anyway, because of GDPR and CCPA and Castle, the fines can be insane if you're not in compliance with these things. So it behooves you regardless of what the buyer wants to have those preferences and be able to track and measure and have the data behind that. So you don't get fined. But the fringe benefit of that is you build their preferences, you understand who they are and you try to meet them where they are. And it's taken some time. Definitely. And, you know, uh, new ideas are a bit like new software products, right? They there's early adopters, there's late adopters and bigger enterprise companies, right? They're less nimble. uh, It's harder for them to change. The, the faster that they do it, even if it's painful in the short term, it's actually still because you're moving in the right direction, it's beneficial in the short term and even better in the long term. So yeah. probably the, the longer it is that you wait as an enterprise company, the more difficult it, it's going to become. And I think now with the economic headwinds that we're facing, right, yeah. that pain, which is there the whole time, but maybe you don't feel it as much actually becomes quite quite obvious um, or, or more visible, I would say. And so a lot of people are then feeling the brunt of that. There's that saying like, right, the best time to clean the roof or something is when the sun is shining yeah, um, exactly. as opposed to when it's raining. You know, we talked about before the show that this is a good opportunity for companies to not necessarily to play, to both play defense and offense. So, you know, play defense for sure, but it's also good to also, you know, use this as a, an opportunity to maybe clean the house a little bit and get your stuff in order. So you better, you can not only weather the storm, but be strong and, and bolster yourself, but be stronger once the sun is shining again. So now that you've kind of described what you've seen a lot of in a lot of B2B companies marketing uh, in the enterprise, can you sort of describe your ideal B2B marketing and sales model? And I know that's, it's a general rule of thumb. There's so many different instances, but just kind of generally, you know, what would you like to see, you know, what does marketing do? What does sales do? Um, how do they do it? And you can talk about goals and strategies and metrics and definitions, compensation, anything that you want or the definition of a lead. But you know, if you had a magic wand, how would things sort of look? Um, there's a model I built out in my head. And this, the caveat is it will never apply to all businesses, but it's something that I think is, is kind of interesting. So you essentially have a CMO type of role that runs the revenue team, right? Across sales and marketing. And the CMO's job is global brand, right? Making sure that we're representing the brand well in the marketplace, right? And understanding what the ideal customer profile really looks like so that you can distill that down into these revenue pods, right? And these revenue pods consist of, we'll try to do it in, in, uh, SaaS words. So it consists of a seller. It consists of an enablement person. It consists of an ABM type marketer. And then like a customer success person, right? That that's what this, this pod looks like And this pod is focused on maybe an industry vertical that's within the ICP or, or something, right. That's like very, very much structured on the ICP and everything within that pod is focused on a set of core accounts in, in acquiring those accounts within the ICP, very targeted marketing and sales efforts, right? And a lot of what happens is door opening, like we talked about at the top of the show, happens through referral. It happens through relationships, like really good door opening. You're going to get your best sales cycles, your fastest sales cycles, whatever. So that pod 
is getting the information that they need to possibly lean on their CMO or another executive in the organization to do very strategic, high-level door opening. The executive almost becomes the BDR, right? That initial outreach comes from a peer-to-peer. Like if you're selling the CFOs, you're arming your CFO to reach out to another CFO, right? That is going to get better conversion, better target, better conversation than, you know, a a non-tenured SDR who's two months out of college, who barely knows anything. Hey, go have an executive conversation with a CFO. They don't have the experience to do it, right? So you build these pods across the business focused on very strategic things while the CMO is responsible for this overall brand awareness. And there'll be inbound that comes out of that and demand, but the outbound motion, you know, I, I, I try to, you know, not to get too hung up on inbound and outbound is created by these pods, but it's very, very strategic and door opening is done at the executive level. That's very interesting. So, so you got these uh, pods focused on very specific accounts and the, maybe the, if you do any initial or marketing, it's going to be peer to peer from, so if you're selling finance software, it's going to be from the CFO to, to their CFO or their VP of finance. You know, they don't necessarily want some junior SDR unless maybe we change the SDR's titles to be like maybe. chancellor of finance or something. Chancellor <laughs> of finance. There you go. Uh, awesome, man. So that, that's cool. And so real quick, how do you define a lead? Because it seems like a lot of people are struggling with that one. I try not to. I don't, <laughs> I don't really worry about leads. I tried leads to get you into trouble. Yeah. Leads <laughs> don't really matter to me that much. Um, hopefully they're people. And if they're people that want to talk to me, I'm happy to talk to them regardless if they're a fit or not. My goal is to have a big enough, a broad enough network that if I'm not the right fit for somebody, I can pass them on to someone who is and, and help them out. That, that's all I'm really ever trying to do. Word. So I, now with that, uh, let's do um, some rapid fire questions or maybe a bit of a sure. recap. So now that we've covered your buyer preferences and how you, how you like to be marketing and sold, sell, sold to, um, <laughs> and your ideal marketing sales model, let, yeah, let's do a couple rapid fire ones. So marketing or sales led or neutral? 50-50? Uh, 50-50, neutral. To, to what extent, if at all, do you have sales development relative to marketing? So what percentage of your marketing budget or investment would you have? Is it 50-50, 75%, 25%? Um, I would invest less in sales development as it currently exists. So you know, maybe... 10%. And I would get more strategic around where the sales development person fits in that pod concept because there, there might be a role for them in there. Interesting. So 10% sales development, 90% marketing. I mean, if you want to call it that way, you can, but again, think about the pod concept. There's these people mm. that have specific roles in the pod. You might have a you know person who's responsible for, for revenue, person responsible for you know the ABM execution, person responsible for enabling the seller for conversations. So the SDR might not even live in there, right? It might mm. be, they might be better served in one of those other roles. You know, what's interesting. I'm going to interrupt this, but I just had a thought, which is, and I've seen this um, particularly with marketing software companies that market mm-hmm. to marketers where they will typically hire as their marketer, you know, or basically it's hiring a subject matter expertise or an expert as their marketer. So suppose you sell finance software, Maybe right. you've got a, a, a customer champion who, or and I, this, this is very hard because it's like how many how many VPs of finance want to make, become marketer, but it's like suppose 
I've seen companies sometimes do this with like an ambassador. So they're not technically a marketer, they're subject matter expertise that they're basically paying um, to, to, and who are enabled by the marketing department. The marketing department's like, you're going to be our voice and our face of the brand because you're a peer. So we're going to pay you, but you're not going to, you know, we know that you don't want to be a marketer on our team. What do you think about that? That fits the pod concept, right? So the Mm. whole idea behind the pod, and this is where I know you can't, but think, think about, I always say you have to niche, niche wins, right? And if you are trying to be all things to everybody, you're nothing to no one. So if we can create niches within this broad-based business, right? Like if you have software that's good for everybody, how do we create niche and expertise, like say in a vertical market, like you're saying, and then you have that person who's maybe the leader of the face, the face, the front, the Mick Jagger of the pod, <laughs> right? And yeah. Nick is out there building up this niche expertise, speaking, um, writing articles, writing briefs, working with the Gartners and serious decisions of the world, you know, getting out there and really building up this expertise in this niche that says, oh man, that financial software company really understands the plumbing industry. <laughs> Bad example, but right. It's like, it's like niche, like, oh, they're the guys for plumbers, but guess what? There's another pot over here. That's only talking to lawyers and they're dominating the lawyer market and they've got their own, you know, ambassador in their pod doing their thing. Yeah, I think man. it could be an interesting, interesting model. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing more of that. Cause as you say, people want to learn from their peers and, and that's such a key thing for a company to have like a face of a company. You see that through a lot of different vendors, let's say Dave mm-hmm. Gearhart from drift, mm-hmm. right? I don't even know who worked at intercom, but I know Dave <laughs> Gearhart and yeah, right, uh, yeah. David Cancel from drift. Right. So, um, all right. To what extent full sales versus sales assembly line? It sort of depends is it and that's a typical response but i don't know if you swing to a certain percentage some way or you know how yeah, do you feel about full that? sales is coming back i mean if you think about it you, you already know my thoughts on outbound right we need to be more strategic more targeted use executives to open doors so you know that there's a lot of underlying work that has to go into that but let's say that's what that is and then on the inbound side why have a middleman if there's a qualified person that comes inbound to you, don't you want to put them in the hands of your best people as fa- quickly as possible? Yeah. So, so what Josh is talking about guys is uh, when a buyer requests a demo on the website and they want to speak to sales um, there's this handoff or there's this manual qualification scheduling process where a buyer has to go through an SDR to answer a qualifying questions. And then there's some manual back and forth scheduling either over email or a telemarketing call uh, to speak to a seller. And so it's at this moment where the buyer is like ready to go and speak to sales. And they're, so they're knocking on the door to speak the best high intent leads that you can yeah, get, exactly, right? Like, right. this is what you're working so hard for. This is what, you know, the moment, right? And then companies are fumbling it. And so there's ways you can automate this in the website with marketing automation or with software vendors. One software vendor in particular who aggregated a whole bunch of data across all of their customer base, they're the largest in this space. This is their data. So you got to take it with a bit of a grain of salt. But basically, <laughs> 70% of buyers that requested them on the website and go through an SDR never make it to sales. And then the average time that it takes for them to get to sales in days is 11 days. Whereas if they do it, if marketing automates this on the website, less than 15, 1.5% of buyers never make it to sales. So you basically get two to three times more demos and the time that it takes to get to sales instead of 11 days is I think three days. Um, yeah. And very importantly, it's, it's up to the buyer 
as to, so that's three times faster. And it's up to the buyer that they want to meet on this date. That date works for them, not when it works for, for, you know, the, the seller or whatever, you never know if that time lag, you know, there's this whole notion of speed to lead could be like, where they're just like, gosh, like, you know what, maybe I'll go hit up another vendor. And then you're no longer the only vendor at the table, the preferred vendor. So all that marketing you're doing to build a reputation to be the preferred vendor, and the only vendor at the table, then you invite all these other competitors and then you decreases your chances of winning. So sorry to interrupt you. I just want to no. know. Well, at the risk of sounding like an old man, <laughs> this is probably going to sound like an old man, but for whatever reason, people don't pick up the phone. So just to give you an mm. example of the speed to lead thing. Oh, yeah. So our inbound form process, you get a lead alert in, in Slack, right? Well, as soon as I see that, I pick up the phone and call them. There's a perverse incentive for an SDR to talk to that person and set a meeting and they get paid on that meeting, whether they're a fit or not. If I pick up the phone and talk to them, one, they're usually shocked. Like, oh, oh, yeah, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. I just filled that out like a minute ago. You're fast. Nobody ever calls. I'm like, yeah, well, what's, what do you got going on? And, you know, we talked for a few minutes. I'm like, oh, dude, I think we could really be a fit for you. Why don't we set some time to talk more? Or, I don't know if we're the right fit. Why don't, why don't I introduce you to one of my friends who does X, Y, and Z? That might be a better conversation for you. It maybe takes 10, 15 minutes and it's fast. They feel good about it. We've, not spun three or four different cycles, you know, either there's an opportunity or there's not. And we just kind of get to it. And this is a really important point that Josh is making um, because this is the low hanging fruit for markers, a quick win, because again, high intent leads, they already know about you. They want to speak to sales and 70% don't make it when you bungle this up um, or it takes them longer and you decrease your chances of actually winning the deal. So the sooner that you um, improve this process or automate it or, or have the seller reach out. In fact, actually uh, I'll end with this and then we'll move on. But there was another um, uh, software provider that, that helps to automate this. And according to their data across hundreds of companies, they did an AB test where they offered the buyer (laughs) the chance to book a time directly from a seller's calendar after answering a few qualifying questions um, and the option to get a phone call. Um, And 95% 95% chose the automated book of time directly from a seller's calendar after answering a few, mm. few questions. 5% opted for the phone call, um, which they thought was actually a seller, but it turned out to be an SDR. Mm. And so um, they weren't very happy about that. And so they, but they took the 5% thinking that it was going to be with a seller. So they were like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, you know, I get to speak to the seller. Oh no, I got to go through someone else who can't really help me to sell is just trying to qualify me. So why not just automate that on the website? So definitely have a think about that, folks. Um, well, you talked about expertise. Sorry to interrupt you. Oh, no, go but, ahead. You know, half the time those inbound leads are people in a fire drill. What do you mean? Like, oh, I, you oh know, we're, yeah, a, yeah. We're, we're a services company, right? Like, so mm. things break and they're like, oh, who can help me fix this fast, right? And given that I have a lot of depth of knowledge in the space that we play, half the time I can say, oh, you can do X, Y, Z. You don't need a consulting engagement. Like that doesn't make any sense. Have you thought about blah, blah, blah? Like, oh man, yeah, I think I'm good for now. Great. Like help them out, move them forward, kind of fix things. Guarantee that person's going to come back when they have a something real for you, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Like the, the, these, these are, so, um, you know, I shared that data the other day, guys, where across, I think it was like 30 SaaS companies, they were comparing sales development leads to marketing's website demo requests. Mm-hmm. And obviously the demo requests, had a better cost per acquisition, 
better cost per acquisition payback period, a better win rate, a better sales cycle. And so, and it was like, it was like night and day. You, these are the best quality leads, right? This, these are the leads that sales really wants and needs and the business really needs. Don't bungle that because th- th- these folks are typically, when they request a demo, they are typically well-informed and are serious about a purchasing decision. Oftentimes with sales development leads, and this is the reason why there's a difference here, what will happen is sales development, this is typical, sales development will push premature buyers that marketing was was trying to educate influence, but before marketing had a chance to do enough influencing on them and on their peers for a buyer to come and request a demo, sales development will, will kind of preempt that a bit and, and push buyers. And so buyers will be like, okay, yeah, I'll kick the tires and I'm just browsing. And so what happens is sales gets buyers who aren't as well-informed, who aren't maybe as serious as a purchasing decision because they were just trying to get information that they maybe should have just gone from marketing, like pricing or demo recording or, you know, how it works or things like that, which maybe, maybe marketing isn't able or isn't free to, to sort of provide to the buyer. So sales does not get as good of a buyer as maybe they otherwise could. Yeah. And demos is a whole other can of worms that we can, we can go down. (laughs) Oh yeah. Um, What do you mean? Well, I, you know, I love the idea of, of ungating kind of technical demos or whatever, like, mm. or like tours of the things like your demo Product as a store, seller yeah. should never be, here's everything we got. I think it was Jake Dunlap who said it on LinkedIn recently, when you're doing a demo, have your one slide demo. And then in your hip pocket, you're like deep technical demo. Hmm. And he's so right. I remember I was co-selling a deal with a Marketo AE in like 2017. We flew on site, did all this stuff. He's like, Hey man, will you do the demo? Sure. I put one screen from Marketo on the, on the, on the TV. I left it there for an hour and we talked uh-huh. and the guy was like, dude, that was the best demo I've ever seen. I'm like, I didn't show anything. I showed one screen and we had a business conversation about how we facilitate the business through this thing. Yeah. And I think you could do, you could put a demo recording on the website. You can have a product tour. You can have a sandbox environment. You can do all, a all bunch of stuff so that you basically show, you show off the stuff. And by the time they speak to sales, they're actually having a, a more interesting conversation than just like, I just want to see how it works. But then you could just see a, a demo recording. And so then the conversation that sales has with the buyer is a much better, more interesting one that's actually probably going to facilitate a purchase much faster. And maybe the, the, the buyer will buy even more because the buyer is so well-informed at that point. They've already seen how it works. They don't need to like go through a demo, which they could just get on the website they can actually have a much more interesting business conversation and talk about the real juicy stuff and, you know, um, the ROI and everything and making the business case. So have a think about putting that demo on the website. You can have the seller, you know, who maybe gives the best demo to record that. Um, so that's a, that's a great suggestion. So with that, let's, let's move on to, uh, where were we full salary plus bonus versus commission. Any preference for if you are in the buyer's shoes? In the buyer's shoes? Yeah. Mm. I know that's tough, man. I'm, I'm so tough. jaded. I'm so <laughs> jaded. Um, you know, it's not a new concept, right? What's a, the, what is it? The Shane company or Jared or one of those jewelers, you know, did away with commissioned sales associates oh, yeah. a decade ago, right? So it's not a new concept and it's a feel good for the person on the other end, right? Like, oh, well, they're not looking out for their own best interest. They're looking out for me. They're not going to get a commission on this. So it makes sense. Um, so it could be like a lose win. It could be like, yeah. or win for the buyer, lose for, for sales or something. I guess if I take myself out of it, being a, <laughs> a, an overall good guy, 
I won't tell any sellers about this. Yeah, it's, it's probably <laughs> it's probably better for the buyer if they're non-commissioned because enough people don't have the the wherewithal to not think about themselves first. Yeah, interesting. So, um, and lastly, the buyer-centric revenue model versus the predictable revenue model. And the predictable revenue model, that's sales development plus the sales mm-hmm. assembly line. Um, so I've had Aaron on my show. I know Aaron pretty well. He's a, he's a good guy. And I think he was an innovator, right? He really did great things at Salesforce and you know built the foundation for what Salesforce is now. Things change, things modernize. And the buyer's preferences have modernized. And I think the model's outdated. And, and in some cases, he's admitted that the model is somewhat outdated when you talk to him. So you know, he's making updates and things like that. So I think anything that has the buyer at the center of it is going to be the, the preferred motion. The way to maybe look at this, guys, is software. Let's say if you're using a software that kind of came about in the early 2000s and use that as an analogy for when the predictable revenue came, model came out based on the early 2000s as Salesforce did sales development, sales assembly line at the time, think about how that changes to today. And so if you're going to run that playbook, think about how you adopt that playbook for today. Similarly, if you were to buy a software product that was came out initially, I think Marketo, right? Or uh, Salesforce, mm-hmm. you know, right? Those products came out in the early 2000s, they've changed significantly. They've gone through product updates, right? So don't just copy uh, the playbook for when it initially came out. Um, so, so either you tweak it to today and, so, and Salesforce has like, you know, version 100 billion and Marketo has mm-hmm. version 100 billion to try to adapt their product to today's needs. So either adopt, adopt it or sometimes, sometimes you say, hey, you know what, this legacy software, maybe it's not for me. Maybe I need to like, try something new. And so you go for maybe a new category of software and you say, Hey, maybe let's try this out. Let's see if this is better than legacy. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. So try to try to kind of, you know, in, in software marketing and sales, we have that whole out with the old in with the new spiel, (laughs) go further, faster, better, blah, blah, blah. So try to also apply that to all your marketing sales practices as well. Um, so awesome, man. So that kind of wraps up the, the questions. Is there anything, um, you know, topic wise, you want to cover that you think might be interesting or, or chewing on well, um, or, or th- things I, that you think are top of mind that the audience might want to consider that, you know, you're seeing and hearing from the, from marketing sales front, or have we covered it? No, I think we've mostly covered it. I, I, I will just reinforce that. I think data, while it's always been the oil for the engine, it's becoming more and more important. And I think that organizations need to leverage data to understand their buyer better, understand how their company is performing better and make decisions more impactfully. And none of that really happens well without a strong data foundation being built on the back end. Um, companies are creating a lot of silos, a lot of data silos, and they have been for years. Finance has a tech stack. HR has a tech stack. Marketing has a sales tech stack. Sales has a tech stack. There's all these tech stacks that are getting built in these organizations, these little silos, every single one of them has customer data, performance data, and data on how you should better decision on your business. You're not getting the full picture if you're not bringing it all together and and understanding it. Awesome, man. So there's some listeners who might benefit from a conversation with you and what you folks are up to at, at, at shift. And you mentioned you're helping, you know, B2B companies, you know, very large companies with, you know, mm-hmm. moder- modernizing their, their marketing. So maybe there's some folks here who are in that boat might want to have some experts weigh in and maybe work with. So, so can you tell us maybe who you, who you help and a little bit about what you guys do? Yeah, we're typically working with CMOs in the mid market and the enterprise to help them 
bring to make their data actionable and modernize marketing, right? So think of deep audience intelligence operationalized through your tech stack with data models built around campaigning very specifically around what the data about the buyer tells you. So we're bringing all that stuff together. We call it our connected delivery model, our key ingredient to connected delivery. We call it data fluidity. So bringing data together across the organization to, again, like I said, connect with the buyer better, have better analytics and insights and make better decisions. Awesome, man. Well, Josh, this has been great. Thanks so much for coming on, man. It's my pleasure. And don't forget to check out Love Selling Hate Sales. Awesome. All right, guys, take it easy.